I believe that I speak for all of us when I thank God for what a blessing that worship set was, that he was revealed through that, and what a personal privilege it is to get to be in this congregation singing with all of you praises to the one true God. I'm going to be reading a passage out of the Valley of Vision, a book of Puritan prayers. This passage is on union with Christ, a doctrine I was largely unfamiliar with until maybe four years ago when Ed Moore preached a sermon on it at Ocean City Bible Conference, Um, and it blew me away. That the way God secures all of his blessings for us are through us being made one with Christ, being united as in marriage with the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And through that, our debts become his to take on the cross and his riches become ours. So that when God does good to us, he is doing good to his son. And when he does good to his son, he does good to us. It's captured so wonderfully in so many verses. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the way that God secures our blessings is through union with Jesus. Union with Christ. O Father, thou hast made man for the glory of thyself, and when not an instrument of that glory, he is a thing of naught. No sin is greater than the sin of unbelief, for if union with Christ is the greatest good, unbelief is the greatest sin, as being crossed to thy command. I see that whatever my sin is, yet no sin is like disunion from Christ by unbelief. Lord, keep me from committing that greatest sin in departing from him, for I can never in this life perfectly obey and cleave to Christ. When thou takest away my outward blessings, it is for sin and not acknowledging that all that I have is of thee. In not serving thee through what I have, in making myself secure and hardened, lawful blessings are secret idols and do most hurt. The greatest injury is in having, the greatest good in taking away. In love divest me that I may glorify thee the more. Remove the fuel of my sin, and I may prize the gain of a little holiness as overbalancing all of my losses. The more I love thee with a truly gracious love, the more I desire to love thee. The more miserable I am at my want of love, the more I hunger and thirst after thee. The more I faint and fail in finding thee, the more my heart is broken for sin, the more I pray it may be far more broken. My great evil is that I do not remember the sins of my youth. Nay, the sins of one day I forget the next. Keep me from all things that turn to unbelief or lack of felt union with Christ. Please pray with me. O Lord, might we be be reminded of what sin is, a disconnection from you, a step on the path away from Christ, away from the union with him, which is our greatest good. O Lord, through the preaching of the word today, cleave us to Christ. Reveal to us how great it is to love thee, because your love is so great for us. Make us miserable at the ways that we are lacking love for you, Lord. Make us hunger and thirst after you, having tasted your goodness, and long all the more to turn our life into a reality of what you have made, that we are one with Christ, 
Therefore, it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Be with our brother's words. Make your great goodness manifest. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I fear I'd be running on empty. Hmm. So apparently I owe people an explanation for my shirt. <laughs> Actually, I, I attended a users conference for the software that we use as our, our major cloud for our commerce uh, at Pepsi. Hello to Mike Capera, by the way. Good to see you, Mike. Um, and uh, so they were having a Latin-themed fiesta they put on a big outdoor feed for like 400 people on beautiful Lake Champlain. So, I don't have a lot of Latin in my, in my blood. I might have a little Pentecostal after putting this, this on. However, I did go to Amazon and I looked up Latin Fiesta men's shirt. And of all the, and of all the options I had, right, this beautiful bold gold lion jumps out at me. And what Bible verse do you suppose informed my sense this is the shirt for me? Somebody give me that Bible verse other than Gary. (laughs) Brother Longo, would you open up to Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 and in that glorious Longo voice, boom that out for us please. Revelation chapter 5 verse 5. (laughs) Amen. The lion from the tribe of Judah. And in that whole scene, there was weeping because who was going to unroll the scroll? Who was going to unfold the salvation of God's plan? Which is what it comes down to. And that was the lion from the tribe of Judah. And so, anytime you see me wearing this now, see, when you start to nod off, which I hope is not more a commentary on your sugar pie than my sermon, then you will look up here and you will see this and you will reorient your focus. I'm going to move this for our sister there can read lips. Yes? Okay. Oh, nice. I take it. I'll take that too. So, um, so when you see this, you'll know that I'm preaching that Sunday. Okay. Uh, two other things quickly. Uh, Kim tends to be very private, but I have to at this point ask for prayer for her. She just continues to struggle for five months now with this unresolvable pain right here in her abdomen. And they have ruled out, I think, all of the scary things, you know, but one test after another. But she is regularly in pain, uh, which affects her appetite, which affects her weight, which affects her energy, you know, affects her strength. So please be prayerful for her in that. Um, I just want to see that resolve for her. You know, as a husband, it's hard. It's, I can't make it better, right? I mean, there's, there's nobody I can punch over this. There's, there's nothing I can throw down. There's nothing I can kick. Nothing, right? With this, so it's hard to watch. And Kim suffers as well as anybody, um, you know, in quiet and, and so. And then uh, one other thing, Tuesday night I'm going to uh, Clearway Pregnancy in Worcester, which is, you know, just what it sounds like. It's it's a really big one. It's like Your Options Medical. I've known them for years. Um, and they are having people take various shifts from midnight to 5 a.m., just sort of sitting in a vehicle outside filming anyone that might come along and cause harm to the center. So I definitely want some praise for that. Um, they simply ask that we photograph and call the police. Um, I'm not stupid. I will be armed. So I just hope that wouldn't become necessary. But that's a strange thing, right? Okay. So so thank you for, for, for those prayers. So we come this week to uh, John uh, 17, Part 1, a sermon, a little mini-series I've titled Wonderful, with a little play on that word there. Today is the first of two sermons I will deliver on the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, specifically the text of verses 20 to 26, which I'll read. And I will be referencing other verses from the chapter as they relate and add weight to the focus of what the church has historically referred to as Jesus' 
high priestly prayer. So John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may and loved them even as you loved me, Father. I desire they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved them may be in with the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now it's, it's not uncommon for this text to be the basis of messages preached on the doctrine of unity within the body of Christ. And I would never deny the importance of that. The scriptures bear considerable witness to its necessity. However, unity does not communicate the depth of the riches of this oneness that Jesus is praying about. The term unity cannot accommodate the profundity of he who has seen me has seen the Father, as Jesus said to Philip. In this first sermon, I mean to prove the purpose of this prayer. What is going on in the mind and heart of Jesus, and why is he praying this prayer at this time, just a few hours before his arrest in the Kidron Valley, betrayed there by Judas, for whom this intercession was not intended, nor would it benefit him. My sincere hope is that you are included in Jesus' pleadings to his holy and righteous Father. Next week I will undertake to challenge you more specifically and personally as to whether the oneness Jesus prayed for is proving to be an answered prayer in our individual lives, in the corporate body life of Sovereign Grace Chapel. In the same Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete is promised to mediate the presence and power and mission of Jesus. I cannot possibly do that, and I have prayed, all, as always, that the Spirit will do that very thing as we take Jesus at His promise Submitting to his word whilst the spirit exposes us to the sublime glory that Jesus and the Father shared before the foundation of the world. Jesus' determination in this prayer is that the God-revealing mission given by the Father to the Son, fulfilled by Jesus in his ministry, would continue in those whom Jesus sends until the return of Jesus to gather us to himself. What is the God-revealing mission, or the mission to reveal God? We discover that on either page one or page two of our Bibles, depending on the font size of your text, and the volumes of occasionally helpful commentary notes that crowd the inspired options. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Jesus is praying for that reality, because it had not yet happened thousands of years into the program of God's rulership over his kingdom. Those of you who have attended our adult Old Testament survey on Sunday mornings, wherein we are studying one book of the Old Testament each week, recognize that phrase, God's rulership over his kingdom. 
It is the originating and regulating hermeneutic constituting the grand narrative of the entirety of Scripture. In other words, if you want to know what is going on in every jot and tittle of the Bible, you must know this first. God is revealing what we need to know about God and God's rulership over his kingdom. That is the big picture, or the main theme, or the gist of, or whatever other idiom works for you. All the details that follow and derive this significance from that grand theme can be summed up as the human response to God and God's response to the human response to God. Step one in that program is God creating image bearers. An image bearer is one that represents another in a variety of categories. We bear the image of the creator and sovereign of the universe. We represent him and have been endowed with the faculties necessary to rule over creation, to subdue, to multiply, to harness the potential God built into the creation as his vice rulers. Not equal to God, not divine, that is not the point, but those through whom his excellence and glory and power is made manifest to all creation, including human to human. When the bloodthirsty, depressedist Pharisees hoped to pin down Jesus by asking him whether the Jews would pay taxes to the oppressive Roman government, Jesus asked them, whose image and likeness are on this coin? They replied, Caesar's. Then, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The image of Caesar represents him as a ruler of a kingdom through whom an entire economy and government is regulated and maintained and derives its purpose. His image is minted on that coin. We are the minted currency on which the sovereignty of God is imprinted. We represent him. We put into action his economy, his government, his rulership, strictly under his leadership and his lordship, with character and love and beauty. We are resplendent with his glory when we are doing this. When we are doing it. That is to say, humans are to proclaim, to reflect, and to reveal the glory of God in every sphere of existence. Sadly, humans fail that by page 6 of the Bible. Mirror, mirror of the soul. Who is Lord, should truth be told? My image I did form in thee, my glory to look back at me. When I would fix my holy eyes to see if you would sit and despise, the visage in the glass I see casts not a loving gaze at me. When I would seek that humble stare, I find you've found one, tis more fair. Inspired chronology informs us that after Adam and Eve failed, so did all their progeny, their offspring. And then God wiped them all out and started all over with Noah and his family. And they failed. Well, that did not negate the plan of God. He then made a people for his own special possession, the Israelites. He called Israel his son, his firstborn. Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. That is, they were to image God. That was their calling. The same basic calling as Adam and Eve. The Old Testament is peppered with references to the holy calling of Israel to image God, to manifest his glory to the nations. That was their mission. A few selections, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in all, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that his statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? Isaiah 49.6 It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God made humans in his image. It had to come to pass that man would fully bear the image of God. Israel failed in that calling. But the word of God cannot fail. So now what? Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Again, a reference from the revelation of Jesus Christ to this same apostle John. The only one worthy to unroll the scroll, that is to reveal and display and bring about the plan God made before the foundation of the world. Have you yet had the intellectual and devotional pleasure of seeing the connection to Genesis that John the Gospel writer makes to Jesus? The prayer in John 17 is merely an interesting sidebar without that connection to Genesis. Check it out. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, Jesus. And how about the rest of the the, the test of image-bearing, glory-revealing? Did Jesus fulfill that mandate? Did Jesus fulfill the mandate to image God? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, He has made Him known. And there it is. Jesus makes God known. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project said, Jesus is the only human that ever succeeded in being human. He's the true image bearer. Other inspired authors of Scripture concur. Colossians 1, 15-19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And therefore Jesus can say in this prayer... The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Verse 22. I know you, and these know you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and will make it known. Now, by now, many of you who have studied the Scriptures for some years, or who have sat under God-glorifying preaching and teaching, which you hear here at this church... Know that in ancient thought, a name was more than just a name. A name was a linguistic device, a tool of language which conveyed information about the identity, the essence bearing the name. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and instructed him to name the child Mary was bearing Yeshua, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now that name Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Clothed in the name Jesus is the embodiment of God's loving kindness, His gracious, long-suffering rescue. 
And when Moses encountered God in the burning bush and asked God his name, God responded with, I am who I am. Or in Hebrew, Echyech. I will be. He is the one who is. He is self-existent. He is non-contingent, which is to say he is before all things and distinct from all things and self-identifying. So when God told Moses what name others should know God by, he used the form Yahweh, which simply means he will be, because obviously Moses couldn't say, I will be. When Jesus said that he made known the Father's name to the eleven disciples, he was saying, I have completed the mission. Or he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. That is what he also says in verse 26, and in verse 6, and in verse 7, and in verse 8, and in verse 12, where he says, I kept them in your name. And then in verse 14, and in verse 22, he says something to the same effect. Keeping them in your name and glorifying are conjoined twins of Jesus' mission to reveal the Father. For Jesus to keep them in the name of the Father was to continually shepherd them into the green pastures and still waters of God's presence. The rod and staff of God leading them through the valley of the shadow of his own death. One of Jesus' seven I am statements in this Gospel of John is I am the Good Shepherd. And his I am statements are regarded by scholars to be an echo of the divine name God spoke at Exodus that I just quoted. Jesus revealing the divine nature, making God known and guarding his keep assigned to him through that revelation. Jesus said in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus whom you have sent. The importance of knowing both given what the Jewish people knew about the oneness of God. The Hebrew Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. To hear this from Jesus was paradigm busting. Like everything else Jesus said. To a people who had rejected Jesus Christ and the whole mission that God called Israel to in the first place for. Or someone else said, Jesus is Israel reduced to one. Knowing God is synonymous with eternal life. That is, knowing, knowing in the biblical sense of the word. Not mere intellectual acumen or accepting of facts about God. It is intimate. It is consecrated. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's how intimate it is. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, which is why, by the way, and I think our brother Justin alluded to this, though I didn't hear Ed Moore's sermon at the time, but so much of what Jesus says about him in the church, he uses marriage as a sort of living parable for. What we need to know about the relationship of us to Christ in many ways is captured in that, it's a little difficult to capture that now because marriage is beginning to lose its objective historical meaning. But marriage is always the picture, and adultery is always the picture spiritually of forsaking Yahweh for other gods. <clears throat> Some of you, you know, actually, it's it's a it's a hallowed oneness. It's a hallowed oneness. This unity. So it's a hallowed oneness demonstrated in the lives of true followers by the obedience of faith. By the obedience of faith. Having eternal life 
which happens here and now, and which 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 is demonstrated by us every day. We 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 demonstrate and we begin to see more of this this oneness, but this hallowed oneness that's demonstrated in the lives of true followers of Jesus by the obedience of faith, by acting what God would act like, by saying what God would say, by thinking what God would think about that thing. Little image bearers, us. Some of you may be thinking, as you read through this text, or have thought of it before, how can Jesus say he accomplished the work when he has not yet been crucified and raised up at this point of the gospel account? I I thought that till I thought more. (laughs) Think about Scripture. If you don't get it thinking about it, just keep thinking about it. And then keep thinking about it some more. And when you think you've thought it out thoroughly, think about what you thought and think, think about it a little more to make sure that what you thought in the first place makes sense. I'm sorry, there's no way you could lip-read that. Unless you're a speed reader. How could we say that Jesus accomplished his work? I mean, his, his, this, this is a prayer a few hours before his passion. How can he have accomplished his work yet? His crucifixion, his crucifixion, his brutal execution is proof, is proof, I submit, that he completed his image-bearing mission from God. His crucifixion is the proof that he completed his image-bearing mission. And why do I say that? In the 15th chapter of John, in the 18th verse, if the world hated me, it will hate you. And here in chapter 17 and verse 14, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Sin-natured, sin-nurtured, unregenerate humans are, as Paul says, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. They are at enmity or hostile towards God. And since natural human hates God, he and she will express that hatred in a, in a manner proportional with the degree to which a person bears witness to God or glorifies God. You see that, don't you? To the degree that we are like or unlike that which we profess to represent and that our actions are consistent with that profession, to that same degree, we will evoke a response from those who either love or hate the thing or person we represent. Perhaps a contemporary example from politics will help. Maybe we can find something convenient on that dung heap of so-called representative government. It's the shirt. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Recently, President Biden publicly expressed his disgust for people that remain supporters of Donald Trump by calling them ultra-magas. Ultra-maga. And he did so without a contempt. See, people in MAGA hats, right? MAGA, make America great again. People in MAGA hats marketed by Donald Trump to convey his campaign theme for America represent Donald Trump. They are his image bearers, in effect. They want what he wants. They speak what he speaks. They say what he says. They point to what he's pointing to. Right? This is very common in politics. If you embody a particular belief system, if you are an incarnation of a particular philosophy, that is, if if you represent in your person a particular idea, you become a very tangible target for those who oppose that idea or that philosophy. One cannot kill the pro-life philosophy, but it can attack a pro-life pregnancy center building, and it can attempt an assassination of a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. One cannot kill the concept of racial equality, try as they may. But one can kill Martin Luther King Jr., who personified the idea in his person of racial equality, you see. Jesus now is the Word. He's the Logos, become flesh. He is the incarnation of the wisdom, of the language, of the logic of God. 
And sinful man cannot bear that. Jesus had to die. And the fact that he had to die in the most brutal form of perfected cruelty says something about just how absolutely he imaged God. How he represented God and God's rulership of his kingdom. That's why Jesus was put to death. Of course, in the plan of God to bring about the reconciliation of his people. But we see that from sort of both angles. Jesus perfectly imaged God, and therefore he had to die. In the same way that the serpent sought and did succeed in bringing about the beginning of the death of Adam and Eve. Scripture says the day you eat of it, in dying you will die, where the dying process set in. We will not have this man rule over us. Jesus represented the Godhead of God. He represented the Godness of God. He represented the kingdom of God and the rulership and the beauty and the glory of God. For depraved humanity, God's glory deserves only death. And only the most barbaric death will satiate such a ruthless appetite for self-determination as we have. Everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a crystal clear, obvious sinner with all the obvious sins that obvious people obviously see that you're doing. You may look like you live a pretty good life on the outside. But you hate God in your unregenerate state. No matter what else lovely may be said about you, and there's some lovely sinners. There's no need to up in nicer words. Every human ever born, except Jesus, upon being informed that God goes by the name I am, replies, no, that's not possible, because I am. And this brings us to the topic of this oneness a little bit more. Though, of course, that oneness is precisely what I've been speaking of and what Jesus revealed, his oneness with the Father. And so also Jesus' Jesus' oneness with the Father is also the surety of our oneness. Our oneness with God, with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit. So let's survey the variety of ways in which Jesus articulates this oneness in this prayer. Verse 3, if we go back a little, as we mentioned, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see the oneness in that? For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Who, who, who can talk like this? Verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 12, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I kept them in your glory, beauty, wisdom, logic, tremendousness, all that stuff you gave me. The one that bears your image. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Back in in chapter 10, verse 28 through 20, Jesus shocks the Pharisees with this. I gave them, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Oh, I can almost see Jesus spiritually putting his hands on the throats of these people. I and the Father are one. And we find then that this oneness about which Jesus prays is a term of relationship. It's a relationship term. A relationship in which the purposes and priorities and virtue and holiness are held in common as a result of the intimacy of the persons involved. Jesus' intention on protecting the sheep 
and keeping them from evil are as powerful as his father's same intention. That's what keeps you and I. It's, it's two that are one, really three that are one against the world. Gideon defeating a big army with 300. The army of evil defeated by the three and one. I think you, God gives us things that we just, we can't fully get. So intense. David at one point says, such things are too high for me. They're just too high. Jesus intent on displaying the Father's glory and carrying out the Father's mission. The ones the Father gave Jesus, His elect whom He draws to Himself, are as precious to Jesus as they are to the Father. Spiritually healthy, loving married couples are one in the care of their children, for example. Right? When the police are functioning properly and there is an active shooter in the school, they are one in their mission to rescue the kids and kill the shooter if necessary. Now those are helpful examples as we endeavor to understand the oneness that permeates this high priestly prayer of Jesus. But they do not quite disclose the standard for which Jesus is appealing. Jesus Jesus speaks of being in the Father. I in you. You in me. Us in them. Them in us. And John 14, he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. This is true of us. Man, how many times do you think about that this week? Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus told his apostles, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In his epistles, Paul uses the expression in Christ, or one of its cognates or related terms, 172 times. What does this kind of terminology express if not a profound and somewhat mystical integration of persons? Our hearts and minds are desperate to penetrate the truth and beauty and the essence of such a relationship. We're desperate to. We can't quite get there. We are deeply immersed in this relationship with God, even while incapable, this side of glory, of thoroughly laying hold in it. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. He just hangs this stunning thing in front of us that he's in us and dwells in us and, and then we, we, we see what we do and we kiss and that stops us from being able to see just what that means and how much it would change us oh, if we would really really let that loosen us it would just rip through us right what we can grasp of this though we must even if we can't grab it all Perhaps for now, God would have us content to pursue love, which is the observable hallmark of this oneness that Jesus is going on and on about. It is the discernible fruit of this oneness, the the roots of which may for now remain concealed to the unglorified, though born again disciple. God is love, John the Gospel writer says in one of his epistles. Can we possibly exhaust the meaning of that love. Jesus surely exhausted himself demonstrating it across at Calvary what the love of God is toward even the vilest of sinners. He exhausted his ability to demonstrate it. He's like, I can't show it any more than this. Have you ever exhausted yourself trying to demonstrate the love of God? We tire too easily. The old hymn, What wondrous love is this? O my soul, O my soul, What wondrous love is this? 
O my soul, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. The Father and Son are one in their desire to communicate the divine love that the Creator God has for the human creature, the image bearer, so that the human creature may bear the image of the dispenser of that love. He loves us to the extent that He does in part so that we can somehow altered and changed by that love image God who is love. Undeniably, the creature cannot attain to this oneness unless God pours out that love into the miserable heart of sin-corrupted humanity. Jesus says in His prayer, I desire... Imagine Jesus starting out with saying, I desire. I desire that they also... Me, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You know, we talk sometimes, we sing sometimes, it's a little goofy to me, but when we all get to heaven, you know, I'll some glad morning, I'll fly away. You don't desire to see Jesus nearly as much as he wants you to see his glory in me. Man, he wants us to see it. Father, let them see how much you love me by letting <laughs> The veil of the conference room in the heavens is pulled back so we can eavesdrop on this appeal that God the Son makes to God the Father. An appeal for a revelation of love and glory. Jesus wants the world to know that God the Father loves the one rescue even as the Father loved Jesus. That the Father loves you and I as much, if you're in Christ, as much as He loves Jesus. And that is so difficult to get our head around because if we imaged God correctly, our response to God would be much more consistent with the degree of love that's been poured into us. But we are in, we are in this, you know, for now. We, it's just we can't contain that kind of love just yet. So that's what he prays for in 23, that they would know that you love them like you love me. So we've examined the text for insight as to the meaning of oneness in Jesus' repeated supplication to the Father and found it to be, as I've described, a relationship in which the purposes, priorities, and virtues and holiness are held in common as a result of the intimacy of the persons involved, I'm sorry, in that relationship. Love is the bonding agent of that oneness. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I want to finish this week by introducing you to and preparing you for the theme of next week's sermon. Some of you will not be here. I, I know that already. Some will be here next week that are not here this week. And some, some, some of the reasons we maintain for not being in attendance either this week or next week or any given Lord's Day is what not yet glorified oneness looks like, in part. We do color outside the lines of oneness, don't we? There is other evidence of this not-yet-oneness that I must challenge us with, and I will, by God's grace, desiring to speak the truth in love. For Jesus, here in his high priestly prayer, testifies to the weight of consequence enshrined in this oneness. Why is it so important? Why is it so important that this oneness is communicated? Why, why, why? What's with the whole oneness thing? Here it is. So the world may believe that you sent me. That's the whole reason for him just pouring himself out. It's almost as if he sweat blots of, drops of blood here, asking that that oneness would be, that, that, would, that, that people would know, that the world would know. That oneness is, is what says, you sent me. So intimate is that. And then may we anticipate with this prayer what this oneness means for the Great Commission. What is it? of oneness mean for the Great Commission? We'll mention that. 
Let me ask you, do you know God this morning? God in his self-revelation. Not some unnamed God that abides in some ethereal, spatially limited realm. Not merely the landlord of that generic better place that multitudes of lost humans allegedly and falsely claim everyone goes to upon death. Not that one. The Apostle Paul wrote, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another massive. I'm sorry for throwing so many verses at you that we cannot possibly handle one at a time, never mind a whole bunch of them. It, it's, it's too much. I'm overstimulated with the love of God. Are you that darkness this morning? has shown upon you this morning through the preached word and through the spiritual shepherding office of pastor elder that I hold in service to God and for your good I am endued with the authority and assigned the duty of commanding you to repent of your unbelief to come out of the darkness and behold your God may God the spirit bring it to pass and bring you into this blessed oneness. Amen. We'll have the worship team come up, and after the last song, Brother Mark will come up and pronounce a benediction on us. Amen. you to stand as we close our service.